We're going to go ahead and continue our study on 1 Timothy. Go ahead and turn in your DM2 workbooks to page 80. We're at the very bottom of page 80. And then in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll start there because I want to make sure that we're back on track with the context and where we've where we're going and where we've been and those kind of things. And we're going to start reading in chapter 6 and we're going to start reading in verse 11. Because verse 11 really starts a section where Paul is uh, encouraging Timothy. He's got about six personal exhortations for Timothy. And if you recall from, from last week, this is really coming on the heels of Paul warning and basically instructing against false teachers and, and also those who, who have a love for money. And so you, you see that contrast, uh, that contrasting word again in verse 11, but you, Timothy, you're going to do something else. You, man of God, you're going to, you know, I want you to pursue other things. And these are the six exhortations that come out for Timothy in, in contrast to the people that Paul had just been describing. And so in verse 11, uh, which we covered last week, we're actually going to pick up in verse 12 this week, but verse 11 uh, reads this. And let's go ahead and read all the way down to uh, verse 14, because that, that includes all the exhortations for Timothy. He says, but you, O man of God, Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. And um, we'll stop there. and We'll pick up in verse 15 when we get there. But in verse 12, verse 12, that, that third exhortation that we see from, from Paul to Timothy is this exhortation to fight the good fight of faith. And, you know, after telling Timothy what to pursue, Paul commanded him to fight. Um, that's the Greek word, agonizomai, or wrestle. And since this is a present tense imperative, what it's basically saying is that Timothy is to fight an immediate and ongoing battle. And um, some of you might might see that Greek word there in the in the capital letters. You might be able to recognize uh, an English word from that. And if so, you're you're right. It's it's where we get our word agonize or agony from. And so it was, uh, in Paul's day, it was, uh, used in the public games. This word fight, uh, agonizomai or to agonize was used to describe the intense struggle for victory. And so it represented the straining of every nerve and muscle to the uttermost for the purpose of winning the prize. And, and also when you see that phrase there in verse 12, it says fight the good fight. Of faith. And so it actually, it's, it's kind of, it's got a verb there and it's got a noun. So it's almost like agonize the good agony of faith. And, um, just to kind of give you a, a, a little perspective on how else this word is used, go with me to first Corinthians chapter nine and just hold your place in first Timothy. We'll come right back. But first Corinthians nine, uh, verses 24 through 26. Paul's going to use the same exact word, this Greek verb, agonizomai, but here it's going to be translated uh, compete. And you'll kind of see how it's used in 
context for the public games, the um, you know the the athletic games of the day. So in verse twenty four, Paul writes, "Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it." And everyone who competes, that's our word, agonizomai, everyone who competes for the prize, you know, basically puts forth every nerve and muscle for the prize, is temperate in all things, but they they do it, they compete to obtain a perishable crown. But we, for an imperishable crown, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so you have this really interesting balance in this phrase that Paul gives. He says, fight the good fight of faith. He says, agonize, but walk by faith. Agonize in the the concept of trusting God in your life. It, it seems to... It seems to be a contradiction. So how do you how do you agonize and trust in somebody else? You know, it seems the opposite. You know, if I were to say agonize in the wrestling match by by tagging out and letting somebody come in and fight the match for you, it wouldn't seem like that would be much of a uh, it, w- it wouldn't seem like that would be much agonizing. It wouldn't seem like that would be much stress or strain on your muscles. Um, but this these are the two metaphors, if you will, that Paul combines here and. The reason I think he does is the fight of faith requires active, agonizing struggle. It's it's a mental, volitional choosing moment by moment throughout our day. And so many, many believers get weary of trusting God day to day. And that is why Paul's command to Timothy was so necessary. Fight the good fight of faith. And, you know, as you think about your own life, just how easy... Is it how natural is it to just trust in yourself to to you know face a trial to face a difficulty and then try to uh, just come up with ways to to overcome the difficulty and we we typically come up with a plan and we come up with contingencies to our plan and we think all these things through and and ultimately what we're doing is we're following into a natural habit pattern of just trusting. Uh, in ourself. And, and quite frankly, everything in us wants to trust in something or someone else other than God. I don't know why that is, but this is where I think Paul really hits the pulse on this when he, when he words it this way, fight the good fight of faith. It's going to take active moment by moment, conscious, deliberate choosing to trust the Lord in our life. And when we talk about trusting the Lord, we're talking about relying upon his word. We're talking about taking in truth and actually having an object upon which to rest, whether that would be God's character. We're trusting that God who says who he, or who he is, who he says he is. We're trusting in God's promises. Maybe we're aware of a promise that would apply in our certain situation. And instead of worrying and fretting and coming up with all sorts of game plans. We just simply go to the word of God and say, you know what? I'm going to trust what God is saying here and I'm going to rely upon his, his promises. And, but this, this imagery that Paul gives us is, is really great imagery because fights are difficult. Typically when you think of a fight, um, it's very difficult. It's not going to come easy. You know, I remember, uh, in middle school in, in PE class, 
I usually loved PE class and um, because I was, you know, I was athletic and I enjoyed most of the sports, but there was one unit in middle school PE that I, I completely hated every year and it was wrestling. And, um, you know, what's really funny is I grew up watching wrestling on TV. I mean, we, for whatever reason, I really got into wrestling at that time. This was when wrestling started to be televised and it was, you know, big business. And we had wrestling action figures and the ring and all sorts of stuff. My brother and I did. And, but I remember middle school wrestling and it was nothing like I watched on TV because part of our grade is we had to get in and wrestle somebody around the same weight and we had to do it for three minutes straight. Well, by about 20 seconds in, I was completely worn out. It took, it literally took every muscle and fiber of my being. And so when I think of this word agonizomai and this, this um, strain on every nerve and muscle, it reminds me of my middle school, you know, PE wrestling days. And I can vividly remember how my body was worked in, in, in ways that had never been worked before in terms of the exertion of trying not, you know, basically not to get hurt by the guy who was trying to hurt me. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that Paul uses this same imagery to describe the Christian life. You know, Proverbs three, five, and six is, is a verse that many of us have memorized and, you know, it's up on our walls, but you know, Proverbs three, five, and six, it really has just some rich truth for us to consider when it says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. See, this is where the fight of faith comes in because if left to ourself and left to our natural devices, we will lean on our own understanding. That's just going to be our natural response. It was probably Timothy's natural response. It's every believer's natural response. And then verse six, he basically says the same thing in all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. And in many times we live life, not acknowledging the Lord and the things that we do. And so you just see this encouragement from the apostle Paul to Timothy to, to fight the good fight of faith, to, to agonize, to make that decision that you're going to trust the Lord. And then in the moments that you have opportunity to, to either trust yourself, to rely upon your own strategy, you, you volitionally with a decision, a choice say I'm not going to do that. I am going to trust the Lord and his word. And so obviously it's a good exhortation for all of us. Notice the continual emphasis here in some of Paul's other writings about how this is going to be a battle of some sort. Philippians 3.12, he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. And you see kind of that, again, that athletic metaphor here. He presses on so that he may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Colossians one twenty three says, continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast. And then again, this emphasis, not moved away, basically not, not being pushed away or shift away from the hope of the gospel, which you have heard. And then Colossians one twenty nine uh, one twenty eight twenty nine again, another blend of this concept of, laboring, putting forth effort, but doing it in conjunction with faith. And, and he says this, Paul writes this in Colossians one twenty eight. we proclaim him admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. And so 
what you see there is is Paul using a lot of effort words and yet recognizing that the power um, by which he can execute the Christian life or his ministry is is being provided for him by the by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so there's this concept of laboring, striving, but doing it according to the power that resides within him. And we learn from Ephesians 1 about that power. What is that power? Well, the very same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the very same power that's at work in every believer. And so it's it's our goal as we live the Christian life, not to overcomplicate things, but to simply learn how to walk by faith, how to fight that good fight so that we are benefiting from the power that resides from in us and that works mightily within us. And so we see this this blend that, that Paul Paul gives. And obviously there's a lot more that can be said um, on this topic, but we see that 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 thrust. And so let's go back to First Timothy chapter six. And then we see not only does he tell him to fight the good fight of faith, but he also says, lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And so in the New American Standard, it's, it says seize, not, not lay hold, but or it describes it as seize in the curriculum. It's take hold of the eternal life and to take hold of something was to grab something with the goal of restraining it. It is holding something very close and not letting it go. And what's really interesting here is is the way that Paul words this, take hold of the eternal life. And the eternal life is Lord. You know that the the word the, the the definite article there is in the Greek text. And so the New King James doesn't can doesn't keep it, but many of the other translations do. If you use another translation, it it keeps the word the in there. And so it's it's not lay hold on the eternal life, it's lay hold of the, the eternal life. And so who is the eternal life? Well it's it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know this is one of the easiest things that we do as believers is to forget the love of our lives, the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Revelation two four, the very same uh, believers that Timothy was ministering to, the church at Ephesus, is described in a letter by Jesus Christ to the church when he when he says this about this church. Revelation two four, he says, nevertheless, after giving some commendations to the church, he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love, and he's he's speaking of himself. They had left not not lost, but they had left. Their first love. They had moved on to to other things, and their uh, relationship with Jesus Christ had become kind of a a a wooden list of of measurements of things that you do, and they had lost that that relational uh, fellowship aspect in the relationship. It was there; they could still have it, but they had uh, purposely chosen. Uh, to to drift or to move away toward these things that they were they were doing very well and you know churches do this all the time uh, believers we do this all the time we we can get so involved in many good things Bible studies mission work service projects you know all of these different things that that are that should be outflows of our of our fellowship with the Lord instead of becoming outflows they become the main things we we 
the the Lord ends up getting pushed out, and then all these other things become our primary focus and our primary measurement of uh, of the relationship and and whether or not it's good. You know, and imagine uh, conducting your marriage that way. You know. If, if someone was to say, you know, John, is your marriage, you know, good? Is it in a healthy place? And I responded, well, you know, by, well, you know, I take the trash out for Carrie and I, I do the dishes for her once in a while. And, uh, you know, every once in a while I cook dinner and, and every once in a while I bring home dinner and, you know, I take care of the yard and I, and if I just started going through a list of, I mean, those are all good things necessarily. And they, they may even show, they may even show my wife that I love her. But, but that would be an odd answer for somebody to describe the quality of their marriage. I, yeah, I do all these things. Um, no, you, you, you're, talking to, you're talking about a relationship with a person. And sometimes we, we often complicate the Christian life. And so Paul, I think, brings it back into such a focus here. He says, take hold of the eternal life. And he told Timothy to keep fighting on the uh, good fight of faith and then clinging tightly to the eternal life, who is Christ. You know, Jesus told Lazarus' sister, Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He's, he doesn't just provide eternal life. He is eternal life. He is the eternal life. And he who believes in me will live even if he dies. And, you know, one of the reasons why Jesus promises eternal life to those who trust in him is partly because of the mechanics behind salvation. You know, God has placed you and I in Christ the moment we trusted in him. And because Jesus is the eternal life, we live eternally as well. We're, our union with him is such that we have eternal life because he is the eternal life. This is just kind of another aspect uh, of thinking about Jesus Christ and his value uh, to us and what he accomplished 2,000 years ago when he died for our sins and rose again. Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, notice the phrase, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. And so the Christian life is never meant to be lived apart from fellowship with Christ who is our life. Timothy was to live in pursuit of the eternal life, Jesus Christ, every day, and all the time. This is not something he would take off, you know, from, so to speak. And, you know, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, 16 through 18 really has a way of simplifying this. And I love the way it puts it because, you know, as Christians, many times we, we want our life to matter for Jesus Christ. We want to live for Jesus Christ. We want to see spiritual growth. We want to keep making the same mistakes and sinning the same sins that we've always sinned. We want to see progress. And, you know, oftentimes we, we struggle and strive according to our own efforts and we don't get anywhere. We just see, you know, repeated failure. Uh, for many of us, we either handle that one of two ways. We, we start to trick ourselves, and we start measuring, we change our measuring stick or we're just defeated. We feel really discouraged. And, you know, the encouragement here in second Corinthians three is just one we, we need to be reminded of because it, again, it simplifies everything. Verse 16, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit and notice this and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is Liberty. Verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit 
of the Lord. And I love verse 18 because it, it simplifies. It tells me my part and it tells me God's part. And my part is very simple. I am not to live like the Lord Jesus. I am not to do what Jesus did. I'm not to become more like Jesus Christ. That's not my role at all. My role is to behold the Lord, to enjoy Jesus Christ, to occupy myself with him. And as I do that, the spirit of God is going to transform me into his image. And guess what? If I try to crank the Christian life out in my own strength, it's going to be the opposite of verse 17. There's not going to be liberty. There's going to be bondage. There's going to be failure. There's going to be frustration. But if I learn to occupy myself with the Lord, the spirit of God wants to free me into a liberty to enjoy Jesus Christ and actually be free to, to function exactly how God wants me to function on this earth and, and producing the life of Christ in me. And this is why Paul is just really clear. Timothy, lay hold on the eternal life. That is the source of godliness. God, remember 1 Timothy 3.16, God reproducing himself in a human body. That's how God makes people godly practically. He wants to reproduce the life of Christ in and through each believer. And so this is the eternal life. In fact, first John refers to him this way. First John one, one through two, it says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and, and the life speaking of Jesus was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is Jesus, because he was with the Father and was manifested to us. And so you see this concept of Jesus being referred to as the eternal life. He is the eternal life. And so just very important to understand. Also in 1 Timothy 6, 12D, he says, to, to which this is what you were called to. So Timothy had been called to pursue Jesus Christ. And you know what? We've been called to, to follow hard after the same person, Jesus Christ. This, this ought to take our, our mental energy moment by moment, day by day, because our, we are so easily distracted. We're so easily pulled aside here and pulled aside there. And we're to take and lock in with our mental energy to be occupied with Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to. And, you know, John 15, there's that cross-reference there, uh, verses 4 through 5. And, and we learn that that our only way to be fruitful in the Christian life is is through our connection with the vine. You know, we, you know the, the emphasis in John 15 is abide. And again, we've talked about this before, but the whole concept of abiding is not us looking down our branch to observe and evaluate our fruit. The concept of abiding is where are you connected with the vine? In other words, it's occupation with Jesus Christ. And so all of these things come together. And this is something that not only uh, Timothy was called to, but each one of us is called to, is to pursue Jesus Christ. And it's going to take a fight of faith to do that day by day. Not only that, but, but Timothy apparently had made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And, and again, Paul used the definite article, the, to make a distinction. So he, he had not made a good confession, but the text tells us he had made the 
good confession, and had done so in the presence of many witnesses. And so what was the confession? Well, the, the word confession means to say the same thing or to agree with. And so Timothy had been called to ministry by Christ and had himself publicly testified to this fact. Not only that, but he had publicly testified um, in a sense that Christ was his life and that he agreed that that needed to be the pursuit of his life. And so in context, we surmise that Timothy had made a public confession that Jesus Christ was now his one pursuit in life. God, uh, Paul called on him to remember this good confession, uh, which apparently he had made in a public meeting where there were many witnesses. And so Paul just reminds Timothy of that. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because you would think somebody who had made that profession or that confession, um, who had made that public confession, um, that that's the type of person you would not need to remind. Like, oh, they're on the right track. We'll just kind of leave them alone. We'll focus on the other people who haven't made the confession. But you'll notice Paul Paul takes time to remind Timothy and to encourage him that, hey, you made this confession and you're on the right track. You know, keep, keep on trucking, keep on moving that direction. And um, in verse 13, we, we, get, we get this uh, fifth exhortation is to declare. And this exhortation is, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and in the presence of two witnesses. Let's uh, read 13 again. Let's read verse 13. I, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Jesus Christ who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And so he urges him in the presence of two witnesses. Paul challenged Timothy to be faithful to fulfill his calling. And so the fact that these were two witnesses should have both, uh, had been both encouraging and challenging to Timothy, especially in the face of his challenges. First, uh, speaking of the father, Paul confidently pointed out that he's in absolute control and ultimate control of all things. This would remind Timothy that he could be fearless. And so he, he brings in, you know, in the, in the Jewish court of the day, they had to have two or three witnesses to establish any fact. And so Paul's kind of using that background here to say, I, I charge you in the sight of these two witnesses. God the Father, Timothy, wants you to be uh, trusting in him and you can be fearless in the fulfillment of your calling. And then secondly, I'm going to call Jesus Christ as, as a witness. And speaking of the Son, he Paul pointed out how Jesus spoke boldly even in the face of a life and death situation. And so Timothy could likewise be bold. And so the the whole point that Paul is making here to Timothy is the things that I'm telling you, Timothy, God, the father and God, the son themselves would be in agreement. Okay. And that's kind of the idea. And it's just a kind of designed to give Timothy encouragement. You know, it's really interesting because at the writing, at the time of the writing of first Timothy, it appears that, that Paul was free that he was probably, you know, moving about the the world uh, freely. Uh, he was not in jail. He was not in danger of any uh, of any sense per se. You know, he's in danger everywhere he went because of the message. But in terms of from the the authorities, and it's really fascinating because by the time we flip the page into Second Timothy, we see Paul is in prison a second time, and he's facing his execution. And we believe that he was executed. that he never made it out of that second imprisonment, that that's when he was executed. And so how quickly things changed. And so providing this encouragement to Timothy is, 
is showing him he too could be bold just like Jesus was. You know, in fact, go to John 18. We see the way Jesus confessed in this sense before Pontius Pilate. He said this um, in verse 33, Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And then here's the confession. Here's where Jesus says something in agreement with the truth of God's word. He, not that he never, not that he didn't always do that, but here's a, here's the confession before Pontius Pilate. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king for this cause. I was born and for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And so we see this very bold confession by Jesus Christ in the face of a life and death situation with Pilate. He could have used his words in such a way to kind of weasel out of, of, of dying there, but he didn't. He, he gave a strong, truthful confession saying what was true in agreement with God. And so here's the, the encouragement to Timothy. This is the charge. And then that's, that sixth exhortation is to keep. We see that, um, in verse 14. In fact, we see that word that, that kind of gives us an indicator of what Paul charged or urged Timothy to do. And he simply said this, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what was this important commandment that Timothy needed to guard? Well, before we look at that, the, the, the word keep, the word translated keep means to attentively watch or guard. And so the word itself was used of a warden's vigilance over prisoners. Okay. The idea is that you, if you're guarding or watching something, you don't take your eye off of it. You, it's, it's a highly valuable thing that you're, that you're watching in that sense. And so he was to keep what? Well, he was to keep the commandment. Again, Paul uses the definite article here, the, with commandment, to remind Timothy of the solemn charge he had just given him in these verses, to flee, to pursue, to fight, to seize, and to declare. And so this would also just, um, you know, in light of the context, which we'll kind of see in the next point, this would also keep, uh, this would also involve keeping the message pure and clean, not succumbing to false teachers, not to succumbing to false teaching. And so all of this, I think, is included in the concept of the commandment, the, the instruction that he had just received, because he says without stain or approach. So in light of the fact that false teachers and erring, erring teachers were warping and corrupting the message, Paul asked Timothy to keep this commandment blameless and pure. And Timothy might have agreed to do so, but for how long he, for, but for how long did he need to be vigilant? And this is kind of interesting. You know, Paul, Paul's now going to kind of describe how long he needs to be vigilant. But when he does that, it's like it branches Paul off into another line of thinking. And so we're going to kind of finish the section we have this evening on a doxology after this last statement in verse 14. He says, you are to to do this until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Timothy was not to stop fighting until the rapture of the church. In other words, 
uh, the charge to Timothy is to do this for the rest of his life. Okay, he was just to do this for as long as his time was on earth. That's kind of the equivalent of what Paul's saying. But again, as we we get to the end of verse fourteen, Paul mentions the appearing of Jesus Christ, and it just what it does is it sends Paul off into a couple of verses of praise for God and His plan. Uh, the 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 idea, the concept of the rapture sets Paul off on a couple of verses of praise. We call that a, a doxology. And so he, he rolls right into this doxology, but it just, again, it puts it into perspective. I think how excited Paul was about the rapture, how excited he was to see Jesus Christ and how excited he was to possibly be part of that generation where Jesus would appear in the clouds and snatch the church off the earth. Um, and those who are dead in Christ would rise first as first Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells us. And then those, those of us who are alive and remaining will be snatched up or caught up together within the clouds. And as Paul kind of mentioned, even mentions this as he's given this charge to Timothy, it's like he, he can't help it, but just burst into a quick praise and worship session, if you will. And so in verse 15, uh, we see in 16, we see the doxology. Let's read it. Let's read that last phrase in verse 14, because that's really the, the lead off and what kicked him off into this. But he says um, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And uh, it says, which he will bring about at the proper time. So the, the mention of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul suddenly broke into a blissful song of praise. It was a doxology to God the Father. You know, just the very thought of the rapture gets Paul uh, super Excited, and we see um, in in verse fifteen that God the Father will bring about Christ's return at the proper time. There, there's an appointed time that that the Father will send Christ to extract the church, and we see even in the Greek language the indicative mood in the phrase "will bring about" verifies the certainty of this event, and God's going to do it at at the perfect time, and the future indicative that's used there guarantees the certainty of this event. This isn't like one of the options that God is considering. It it is something he is going to do. And so we can be confident that this is not something that might happen, but definitely will happen. And since the father alone knows the time of the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, it seems best to understand this doxology is specifically speaking of God, the father rather than God, the son. And so this interpretation fits the context better. And so we, you know, we see in Matthew 24, 36 that the father knows and determines the time acts one seven that these things are left in the father's care to determine. And really it, it, um, really what's, what's interesting about this whole concept of the father knowing is the fact that, that this whole, this whole truth of the rapture, and we don't have time to develop this right now, but it really reflects the different stages of a Jewish wedding. And so just, just remember that the, the rapture portion or the Jewish wedding that's, I guess, represented by the rap, the, the portion of the Jewish wedding that's represented by the rapture is the point in time where 
the, the son of the father who is betrothed to his wife, they are no, they're not uh, married presently. They haven't had their wedding. Uh, the son has, uh, is engaged to the wife. He has come home to the father's house to prepare a place for he and his new bride. And when that project is completed to the father's satisfaction, the father on the appointed day can say, you may now go fetch your bride. And so the son at that point in time would go and fetch his bride. He would bring her back to his father's house. They would have a wedding feast and then they would live happily ever after. But that was what was represented. And so just interesting that 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 this concept that the the rapture is going to happen according to the time frame of the father. Again, it fits that Jewish wedding feast symbolism, if you will, that I think Jesus uses and obviously used it in John 14, 1 through 3. And it just kind of fits with the whole rapture uh, teaching. So Paul goes on, he says, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So besides the worship of Diana, Ephesus was a center of um, emperor worship. Kind of, kind of interesting. The doxology, this doxology is Paul's declaration that the God we serve, not any human sovereign is the sole supreme ruler of the universe. And so the city of Ephesus, where, where Paul has got Timothy, where he's writing, excuse me, to Timothy, had had this incredible worship system, this temple to Diana. And they also had a, another smaller temple where they worshiped the emperor of Rome at the time. And what Paul is saying is he's the blessed and only, <laughs> I, li- I like that word because it's very exclusive and it should have been something that got the Ephesians attention, the Ephesian believers, Timothy, as he writes and, you know, in the, as Timothy's reading this in the shadows, probably of the, the temple of Diana to say, you know what, this is big and impressive out here, this temple, but we worship the only sovereign, the only one who is, who is uh, the highest authority. And so God, the father is described as the blessed and only sovereign. This, this means simply that he's the one who occupies the highest position of power and authority in the universe. God the Father, interestingly enough, here is described as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Even though these titles also describe the Lord Jesus in Revelation nineteen sixteen, in this verse they refer specifically to God the Father. Kind of interesting, you know. I think of King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I think of of Jesus Christ typically because of the use of those phrases in Revelation 19, but here it's used of God the Father. And we look at 1 Corinthians 15, we'll turn there in a second, explains that in the end, the Father will be irrefutably seen to be king over all kings and Lord over all lords. Turn turn with me to really uh, to 1 Corinthians 15 really quickly. Um, this, is, this is kind of an interesting passage if you've never seen it um, as it relates to some of the events um, at the end times and uh, it also just gives us some insight into the structure. There's a there's a structure within the Trinity, even even though God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Holy Spirit is God. There's there's still a structure, a, a unity, an organized organized way that the Trinity reacts and interacts with one another. So just kind of with with each other. I mean, and and it's just really interesting 
to see that. It's kind of funny because this passage right here, when, when I graduated from seminary with my master's degree, I had to have an exit interview with um, one of my professors and then I think the leader of student services. And, and basically the exit interview, they gave you a list of, I, I can't remember how many questions, um, a couple hundred at least. And then they could quiz you. It was, they were Bible questions. They could quiz you on any of the questions they gave you. And a lot of them were easy. You didn't have to really study for, but, but some weren't. And, and I remember one of the questions was, what is Jesus going to do with the kingdom when the, when the millennium is over with? And I, and I, and I actually got stumped on this question because it wasn't one of the cards that they had given me. And I was like, wow, I don't, boy, I don't know. Well, first Corinthians 15, 24 answers that. It's just kind of, it's a fascinating thing as we, we consider God, the father being described as a king of kings and Lord of lords here in first Timothy. Look at verse 24 in first Corinthians 15. It says, then comes the end when he, speaking of Christ, delivers the kingdom to God, the father. And when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, and that was the answer to the question, what does Jesus do with the kingdom when it's over? He delivers it to God, the father. And it's interesting because all rule and all authority and all power, and I think probably speaking in terms of civic human authority, uh, will end. Verse 25, for he must reign speaking of Christ, till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's a big hallelujah. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things were made are made subject to him, then the son himself, notice this, will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so there's that structure you see within the, the Trinity where Jesus, the same word is used of wives in Ephesians 5, this this word subject, the, that wives are to submit to their own husbands there, to just place themselves under. And here we see Jesus, an example for wives as well, of placing himself under God the Father. So just kind of uh, interesting there, you know, as we just, as we see this doxology in 1 Timothy um, and how that relates to some of the things we'll, we'll see at the end of the millennial kingdom. Now, describing God, he, Paul goes on to say, who alone, notice those, again, those exclusive words he uses, possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and an eternal dominion. Amen. And, and no, in the Greek, it doesn't say a woman also. It's just amen. So no one is like God. He alone deserves honor, respect, and reverence. God the Father is described as the one who alone possesses immortality. This not only means that God cannot die, but he alone possesses this innate characteristic. In fact, what what would what were we just talking about Jesus earlier? He is the eternal life. And so God the Father possesses immortality. God himself in in all three persons of the Trinity possesses immortality. They are eternal life, each each member of the Trinity. And so he alone possesses this innate characteristic. People do not have this attribute in themselves, but thankfully they can be given everlasting life through the gospel as a free gift from God. And so God the Father is also described as the one who dwells in unapproachable light. And this means he's so unattainably perfect 
No one can approach him as they are. If they tried to, they would die. And we see that in Exodus 33 and Moses's interaction with God. And God said to Moses, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. And that, that is just a mind-blowing concept that God is so holy that if someone were to see him or approach him without the, the proper righteousness provided by his son, they can't even live. They, they would die. It's, it, he's that holy, just incredible. And then let her see God, the father is described uh, as the one whom no man has seen or can see. And this refers to seeing God in his true essence. One of the beautiful things about the gospel, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is John one eighteen says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. And so in order to know God, he has revealed himself through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so obviously that's just amazing. It's kind of fun to see Paul just in there and get, get really excited about the rapture of Jesus Christ. And so that, that'll kind of close us out tonight. Let me close this with a word of prayer. Lord, thanks for the evening. Just the opportunity to open your word. I Just even this burst of excitement as recorded by the apostle Paul is just, just really encouraging to see just another believer get so excited about your soon return. And Lord, we're excited about it. It kind of takes our mind to that moment when you will appear in the clouds and you will raise those loved ones of ours who have died in Christ, who are believers, who, who had trusted you for salvation and, and how they're going to be raised from the dead that they'll receive their glorified bodies at that moment and how we who are alive and remain will be caught up with them in the clouds. We look forward to that homecoming, Lord. And so we pray like John does in Revelation, come quickly. Uh, we long to, to see you. We long to be with you in light of everything that's going on in our world. It would be, it would be even greater if it was sooner. <laughs> we know that that's in your timing. We trust you with all those things. And again, we just thank you for the truth that that will happen one day. We would love to be the generation that experiences it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.